Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. I initially uh, was thinking about asking, seeking, knocking, and how that prayer should be intercessory for others. And so I began thinking and, and had, a, had a title for the message, Praying for Others. But it's, uh, there's so much that is in, this pass, in, the, in the scriptures about praying for our enemies that that's what we're going to cover specifically today. So praying for your enemies. We'll be looking at several passages this morning. We'll begin here in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Now, the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew is a powerful and practical sermon. I heard one pastor say, come and hear the greatest sermon ever preached, and uh, he, didn't know, he didn't let us know that's what he was preaching on, the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the greatest sermon ever preached. But it, uh, it confronted the external practices of formal religion, and in its place, went right to the heart of the issue about people's love for God. Uh, this is, Jesus was saying, this is what you've heard, this is what has been taught, but I say unto you. And so that's the, the, the format here, the traditions uh, surrounding the Old Testament scriptures. And so one of the startling things that Jesus said in this sermon was that uh, we are to pray for our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 and 44 Ye have heard that it, had been, it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, it had not been said, hate thine enemy, as far as the Old Testament uh, scriptures go. But there was uh, a traditional uh, hedge about the law that the Pharisees and the uh, Judaizers would, uh, would set up. So in order not to, not to go against the law, you didn't go over this hedge. And so this is a, a logical uh, leap for someone to say, well, love, your, uh, love God, hate your enemies. Uh, but, uh, but he said, that's, that's not what he said, but he, he says that, it's, it's been said. So not from scripture, but from their oral tradition. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And that word despitefully means to insult, to slander, to falsely accuse you. Is that your first response, to pray for them? Well, to pray uh, an imprecatory prayer perhaps, but that's not what he, the Lord is saying here. Pray for them which insult you and persecute you. That word persecute means that they're pursuing you with the intent to do harm to you, either physically or emotionally. They, they, they are against you. They're your enemies. The Old Testament made it clear that we're to love those who are family members, uh, who are our community, who are our friends. Leviticus 19.18, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But no one has, was expected to love their enemies, um, especially of the nation of Israel. The Pharisees, in fact, had perfected this hatred to a point where, by the New Testament, they actually thought they were doing God's work. God was judging his enemies through their hatred. And Jesus pointed out in Luke 6, 32 and 33, that even sinners love people who love them. Um, verse 32, let me just read that, that passage in Luke chapter 6. For if ye love them which love you... 
what thank have you? The word thank there is charis. What grace, it's translated other place. What, what benefit is that? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them that do good to you, what thank have ye? Same word. What benefit is that? For sinners also do even the same. Then he said in verse 35, the same thing that he's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, but love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, or you'll be manifested as his children as you do this, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. So in Matthew 5, 44, we have this outline for our message today. How do we pray for our enemies? It starts with love, and then we're to bless our enemies, and then to do good to them. Some will say, well, I don't have any enemies. Well, if that's uh, your case this morning, then think about the people that are the lowest on your friends list. Uh, they're probably them. An effective ministry of praying for enemies first starts by loving them. We find it very easy to pray for people whom we love, family members that have been, even this week, just we've heard of, of family members who have gone into the hospital or had some difficulty, and we share those on Wednesday nights as prayer requests. And we are moved and burdened because others are moved and burdened for people whom they love, whom they're close to. So what about our enemies? This is a great starting point. You're never going to be effective in praying for them unless you start loving them like Christ loved them. And so first, you need to ask that God will give you a love for them. You have probably heard or read about Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch Christian whose family helped the Jews escape Nazi, the Nazi Holocaust. She and her sister Betsy were sent to a concentration camp, uh, two of them, uh, where they suffered abuse and torture, unimaginable torture. And Betsy died, I believe it was in Ravensbrück that she died. Corrie told of a conversion, uh, I'm sorry, of a conversation that she had with her sister one day after being tortured, I cried out, Betsy, how long will it take? Betsy said, perhaps a long, long time, perhaps many years. But what better way could there be to spend our lives? I turned to stare at her. Whatever are you talking about? These young women, that girl at the bunker, if people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. We must find the way, you and I, no matter how long it will take. She went on almost forgetting in her excitement to keep her voice to a whisper while I slowly took in the fact that she was talking about our guards. I glanced at the matron seated at the desk ahead of us. I saw a gray uniform and a visored hat. Betsy saw a wounded human being. Corey shared something that happened years later she said, I was at a church service in Munich, and I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at Ravensbrück. He was the first one of our actual jailers that I had had, that I'd seen since that time. He came up to me and the church was, as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, 
and I who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale, the need to forgive, kept my hand to my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. If someone like that can, can give it over to the Lord and, and simply ask, Lord, love this person through me. This is a real enemy. Can we not do the same with our enemies? How do you pray for your enemies? You start by asking God to let you be a channel of his love toward them. And as you begin to love your enemies as he did, God will bring into your heart a forgiving attitude, a forgiving spirit. Let's turn to another passage, uh, two verses in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Very specific things that the Lord is telling us, instructing us in these two verses of, of evil things that we need to let go of, that we need to put away. And then some positive things that should take their place. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. There are three that are mentioned first that are internal attitudes that we're to put aside. And there are three external reactions that spring from those attitudes. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And so what are these six things we put away? Three internal attitudes that we might have. Bitterness. The word speaks of a poison, a resentment that you carry around because the heart is filled with this hatred, this animosity, because of the hurt that you've endured. Let all bitterness. And anger, that's vengeance. And wrath, that's the, uh, a step higher, the, the violent, angry passion, the fierce passion. Those are the attitudes that spring up, and what are the reactions that come out of those attitudes? Clamor, an outcry of anger, a sudden explosion. And if you're ever around somebody like that, and, and they look at you, and you're startled, and almost shocked, and, and they, they ask, I don't know where that came from. Where do you think it came from? Well, it came from the bitterness that you've allowed to fester in your heart for all these years. You've, you've kept that hostile attitude alive. You kept breathing in the poison. And so here's this outburst, this clamor. 
Also, evil speaking. Uh, the word here is, is blasphemy, speaking evil of someone else, hostile words. And then a little bit later in the verse, malice, working all kinds of, of evil, of wickedness. Now, if we look back up to verse 30, we'll see that these are the things that God, God warns us about that will grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit sees the bitterness grow into hatred, and it causes him grief. It causes him sorrow. It causes him sadness. Verse 32, in contrast to that, set aside those things, are some three positive things that should take the place of those six evil attitudes and reactions. Here's a solution to bitterness, to anger. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We know those, those words. We've learned them as children, as if you've grown up in church. We know this is something the Lord wants us to do. But how difficult it is when we start putting people, faces of our enemies, in, uh, next to that verse. Be kind. The word is beneficial, helpful. In, in matters of, of morals, of, of our manners, of, of showing grace, be kind. Be tender-hearted, full of not bitterness, but of sympathy, of compassion, of feeling a sadness for that person. If they go continually on this route of being an enemy of God, they will face the consequences, his judgment. Be forgiving one another instead of getting bitter. And the reason, because Christ made it possible for God to forgive us. As God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That was what Jesus asked the Father to do. Even as his persecutors killed him on the cross. Well, we killed, our sins killed him on the cross. He said, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the prayer. One of the most convicting stories that Jesus told was about the servant who was forgiven a debt that he could never repay. You know the story. We won't go over it again. But then he turned around to another servant who owed him much, much less, and he had him locked in prison. He wouldn't forgive the smaller debt. And the lesson in that story is that God has forgiven us a debt that we could never pay, a huge, insurmountable debt. And how can we turn to someone else and say, no, I won't forgive you when you ask the same things. Be patient with me and I will pay thee all, is what they both said. In order to pray for your enemies, in order to have this forgiveness in your heart to them, we need to first love them. There's another step in learning to pray for our enemies. You need to bless them instead of cursing them. Let's turn over to the book of James in chapter 3. James chapter 3. James in this section is telling us about the, 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 the tongue and the inconsistencies of, of people who say they have a genuine faith in blessing God and then turning around and cursing men. James chapter 3, we'll look at verses 8 through 12. But the tongue can no man tame. And some people say, well, if that's the case, what's, what's the use? But God can if you yield it to him. 
It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, that is with the tongue, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith, with the tongue, curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. And then he asks this question, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? Those are impossible things. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Man is made in the similitude of God, in his likeness, in his image. Doesn't it bother you when you see someone burning a flag, an American flag, as a citizen of the United States? It bothers us because it's not that it's just cloth. If it had been not put together as a flag, burn it, that's fine. But it's, it now represents our country. And burning the flag represents an anger toward our country. Uh, when you curse or condemn another human being, you're showing disrespect to God in whose image he's made. To bless God and then turn around and curse man is incongruous. James gives those two illustrations. He asks if a fountain can produce sweet and bitter water, that'd be fresh water and salt water at the same time. It's impossible for that to happen. You're only going to get one kind of water from that fountain. And then he says, what about a fig tree yielding olive berries or an olive vine yielding figs? It just doesn't happen. It's out of place. It's out of character. And so the illustration's clear. A Christian cannot bless God and turn around and curse men, his fellow man. We are, we are to bless both God and man. The word bless there is eulageo. We get our word eulogy from it. That's a word, literally, a word of goodness or a word of praise. It's a pronouncement. Most of the time we think of a eulogy as a benediction, something good that is said. Blessing your enemy. How does that look? It might sound something like this, a prayer. Lord, you know this person has chosen to be my enemy. I pray that you would somehow use me as an instrument of your love to them. They were made in your image with an eternal soul. Please show your grace to them so that they'll turn to you. That's how you bless your enemy. In order to pray for our enemies, we need to first love them. We need to learn to speak good of them, to say good things to God about them. And then third, you need to good, do good to them. Do good to them that hate you, our passage said in Matthew 5. Genuine love will always respond in action. Think about how God showed love to us. John 3.16, the word so there. For God so loved the world. How did he love the world? That he gave. Love responded in action. Did we deserve salvation? No, absolutely not. That's why it's so amazing to consider. We were, we were his enemies, but he loved us. Romans 5, 8, and 8 through 10. But God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies. We were enemies. We were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son. How, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
So if, if God so loved us that he gave his son for our sins, we ought also to love our enemies in a demonstrative way. Um, do good to those who hate you. As we learn to pray for our enemies, there's one more message I'd like us to close with, that, uh, one more passage that gives some specific ways of, of doing good to others, and it's in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. There are five ways that are mentioned here of how to respond to your enemy. If we're going to be actively doing good to them, now this is a great passage that tells us how. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, and if it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's just look at each of these sayings, uh, ways that we're to respond to our enemies. First of all, we're not to seek revenge. Recompense to no man evil for evil. William R. Newell uh, writes, this takes for granted that someone will do you evil. <laughs> it's going to happen. Well, what do you do when it does? How do you respond to someone who, gives, who sends evil your direction? The English word for recompense means to recompensate. I'm going to compensate you again for something. And so I'm not to recompensate them evil for their evil. That's the natural worldly way of dealing with anger, right? We use the words payback or getting even. Uh, even in the Greek language, the Greek word had the idea of rewarding them. So how are you going to reward someone for the evil that they send your way? Don't recompense evil for evil. The world's philosophy, revenge is sweet. God says, don't recompense evil for evil. Second, we're to be honest in our dealings. Second half of verse 17, provide things honest in the sight of all men. The word provide there is to consider in advance. Before you vision video, vise, before you see it, make some preparations. So to consider in advance. You plan ahead to treat others fairly. Provide things honest. Word there is things that are good, things that are attractive, things that are morally, ethically upright. To whom are you to provide this, to, to plan ahead of time, to do this, to act this way? In the sight of all men. This is a, a prohibition against taking advantage of other people. Now, some people love to go to yard sales, and you're looking forward to the spring when you see those signs pop up. And you like to go and get a really good deal on things. Does this verse say that you can't dicker with them? I don't think it says that at all. There's another verse that you have to put on your dashboard if you're a garage sale person. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 14. It is not, it is not, saith the buyer, but when he has gone his way... Then he boasteth. <laughs> now, it's okay to go back and forth on a price. But what he's saying is be fair. Don't sacrifice an opportunity to witness to that person at the yard sale because you have given them 
less than what the object is worth. Christians should be recognized by the world, to be honest, in all of our dealings. So if you, know, if you come across something you know is more valuable than what they're asking, what would happen if you say, you know, you don't know what you have here. I do. I'm going to give you more than, more than you're asking. I'm going to give you what it's worth. Wouldn't that be different when you left a gospel track? They might read it. They might visit church. So don't uh, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Uh, don't take advantage of other people. The third uh, way that we're to respond to enemies, everyone outside, uh, we are to live peaceably with others. Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. And a lot of people look at that, but boy, there are a lot of uh, loopholes in that verse. If it be possible, it's not. <laughs> and if you know that person the way I know them, you'd say the same thing. It's not possible. Uh, we need to be really careful it's always good to study the words in a passage before we formulate our theology and our practice. Uh, this phrase, there are only four words in the original language, if, it's, if possible, from you. That is, as far as you are concerned, or on your side of things. One author explains it this way, whether between nations or individuals, peace is two-way. By definition, a peaceful relationship cannot be one-sided. Our responsibility is to make sure that our side of the relationship is right, that our inner desire is genuinely to be at peace with all men, even the meanest and most undeserving. Oh, I, I understand what the verse is saying now. I need to make the effort on my side of things to live peaceably with all men. The fourth, we're to leave revenge in God's hands. Dearly beloved, verse 19, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The ones that are addressed here are believers, dearly beloved. The world wants revenge. I mean, that's just normal for them. They think if I execute revenge, I will be satisfied. Even if the law or no one else gets this right, I'm going to get it right. The believer, on the other hand, knows that God always does what's right. He's going to reward good. He's going to punish evil, and it will be just, and it will be fair. And so the prohibition here, avenge not yourselves, is not saying that you, shouldn't, you don't have the right to self-defense. Framers of our Constitution knew that uh, we have been some God-given rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, or the, the ownership of property. And those things are God-given rights. And so you have a right to protect yourself. So what does avenge not yourselves prohibit? When you know that someone has wronged you, not wronged God, we stand up for truth and for the scriptures, but when someone has personally wronged us, we don't go out and look for revenge. Trust God. Know that he is just. There may be times when evil men commit crimes and we look at that and we say, it looks like they got away with it. There have been people in church history who have been killed for their faith in Christ and you say, well, that's not right. But isn't God sovereign? Isn't he in control? And there's coming a day when the judge of all the earth will execute his perfect justice 
And every wrong will be punished. And every right will be rewarded. And so, how are we to react in knowing that? He says, give place unto wrath. Now, that's not talking about anger management classes that you go to and they say, take all, everything that you're angry with and put it in this box and you keep it locked up until you can uh, get rid of it somehow, opening Pandora's box without hurting anybody. Giving wrath, this giving place to wrath is giving God's wrath room to work. It's his anger. He's righteous. He sees. He knows. He will make it right. And so when, when I give place unto wrath, I'm letting him take over. I'm saying, I'm not going to do this. I, I'm not going to try to execute vengeance. This is God's work. And verse 19 ends with a quote from the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 32:35, "To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Let God repay. Don't take it into your own hands. It's, it's His work. And haven't you found that sometimes you say, "Well, I'm going I'm to the Lord's not going to work, I'm going to." And he stands back and says, "Okay, I had something much better in mind." <laughs> and it never turns out. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. The last were to overcome evil with good. Verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That's another uh, thing that we need, to, we need to look at here. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I've heard people use this verse and with great pleasure, thinking, boy, I am going to pile coals on their head. It's going to scorch them all the way to their shoes. I really want it to hurt. There's a fable that tells about two men who hated each other, enemies, and one of them rubbed the lamp, got the genie, said you can have any wish that you want, but whatever you wish for, your enemy is going to get two of whatever you get. And so he, he asked that he could be blind in one eye. What a, what a tragic thing. Uh, heaping coals of fire is not retribution here. The description probably comes from the practice of someone who runs out of coals in their home. The fire has gone out, and so they go to their neighbor and they say, I need some coals, do you have any? And in generosity, they would heap those coals, and they would carry them back in a, a, a clay vessel, either a pot or a, a pan, uh, type of a, a setting so that they would be able to take it to their fire and then they would carry things on their head and there would be insulation there whether cloth or whatever but so this is a good thing this is not a vengeful mean thing that it's talking about it's not it's not hostility it's kindness and when you display genuine kindness kindness you say well th that's going to really help my enemy's going to come around and, and be my friend now it doesn't always work that way it might make things worse. But we're, continue, we're to continue to show kindness to our enemies. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a Chinese emperor that had to deal with an insurrection in one of his distant provinces. He called his officers together and said, follow me and we will quickly destroy them. As he marched ahead, the rebels surrendered to his overwhelming force. Everyone expected punishment and revenge, but instead they were treated with kindness and humanity. An officer argued 
Is this the way that you treat your rebels? You promised to destroy your enemies, to which the emperor replied, I promised to destroy my enemies. I have made friends of them. Let's conquer the enemies that we think that we have with the love of Christ. Is there someone that comes to your mind immediately when you think of an enemy? As soon as I started uh, announcing the topic of the, of the message this morning, you thought about that person. Someone the, at least is not at the top of your friends list. Will you ask God to help you love them? Will you try to bless them? Will you make attempts to do good to them so that when you do, your prayers are going to be much more effective? It's not beyond the realm of God's power to save your worst enemy. Ask God to use you to reach them with the good news of salvation with Jesus Christ. He can still do that. And if he doesn't, you've done what the scripture has told you to do. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the instructions that your word so clearly gives about how we're to pray for our enemies, how we're to treat them. And we cannot do that in our own hearts. We need, as Corrie ten Boom said, we, she needed you to love them through her. And so help us to open our hearts to that possibility and let that be our prayer and our desire to allow you to love, to forgive, to treat kindly, to bless those whom we think are our enemies, and we'll give you the praise for what you'll do in us and in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.